we have been following the ministry and the life of Jesus as he proclaims the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God. And he has been demonstrating his power and his authority and giving his watchers just a small glimpse of what it is like in the kingdom by healing the sick, by curing the blind and the crippled, by making the unclean clean and even raising the dead. And in watching him do all of these things, people are responding in different ways. There are some who are just rejecting him outright. There are some who are embracing him. But even those who embrace him are not 100% sure of what it is that they're embracing. They're going with him. They're following him. They're just a little unclear on where it is that they're following him too. Um, And we're going to see another example of that this morning. I'm going to pick up in Luke chapter 8. Uh, starting in verse 22. One day, he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. We're going to pause right there for a minute. Now, the Sea of Galilee, the lake that's, that's referenced here, um, just by virtue of its geography, has some pretty severe and pretty sudden storms. They can come on very, very suddenly, very unexpectedly. And they can be tremendously dangerous to the boats that are on the lake. But this crew that Jesus had with him, his disciples, right, there was a good chunk of them that were very experienced fishermen. You know, they, they knew what they were getting into when, when they did this. Um, you know, it's kind of like heading out into a snowstorm with somebody from northern Maine. They've, they've done it before, and they may even have a perverse sort of enjoyment from driving through inclement weather like that, right? But, but, if you're riding around with Brian in the middle of a snowstorm, and all of a sudden he says, we're perishing, we're done for, we're going to die out here. I'd become a little concerned at that point, right? Because if, if Brian's pretty sure that this snowstorm is going to kill us, I'm, I'm going to begin to get a little bit concerned. And that's what's happening here with these fishermen. They knew, they knew every inch of this lake, and they were convinced, they were convinced that they were going to die. Now, where is Jesus in the middle of this? He's asleep in the back of the boat. We're going to come back to that in in just a minute. But they wake him up. They wake him up. Master, master, we are perishing. We're going to be destroyed. And when Mark records the story, he adds a little bit of a a little detail. He says, "We're, we're going to die. Don't you care that we're going to die? Don't you care about us, Jesus? They're crying out to him from the deepest part of their hearts in fear and in terror and in absolute despair. Lord, save us. We are perishing. And he awoke, continuing in verse 24. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And they ceased. And there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying one to another, Who then is this, 
that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him. So in the middle of this trial and tribulation of the disciples, Jesus gets woken up. And when he awakes, he rebukes the wind and the waves. And again, Mark records the words that he uses. He says, peace, be still. This man, this carpenter from Nazareth, stands up in a boat and speaks, and creation obeys him. And the disciples respond in fear. They respond in fear. Who is this? Who is this? Who can have this kind of power? Who yells at a storm and the storm listens? <coughs> now, he has shown power before in his miracles, right? But it's always been in reference to human beings. Somebody gets healed. Well, it could be the placebo effect, right? It was a psychosomatic illness. It was all in their head to begin with. Maybe they were paid plants. Maybe it was an actor. You know, Jesus sent his disciples ahead say, here, I'll, I'll give you two denarii to play sick and then jump up when Jesus heals you, right? I mean, that, that, that's a possibility. That's one of the possible explanations for what happened. But you can't negotiate with a storm. You can't pay off the wind and the waves. And so there must have been a certain amount of, of confusion or uncertainty in their hearts about who Jesus is. Because by his actions, he is revealing here that he is the word of God made flesh. He is the effective means of creation. If you remember back in Genesis 1, God spoke his word and his word went out from him and it did not return void. And that word was made flesh. It was given human form in Jesus of Nazareth. And if all of that is true, then why wouldn't he have power over creation? Because he is the one, Paul says, who holds all things together. Paul wrote in, in Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things holds to, hold together. He is the one who holds the molecules of water that make up those waves together. He is the one who designed the forces of physics and sits in power and dominion over them. And so when he speaks to the leper, the leper is made clean. When he speaks to the sinner, the sinner is forgiven. When he speaks to the sick, he is made well. And when he speaks to the dead, he stands up. He speaks to creation, and creation responds, because creation recognizes in him its creator, the one who rules over it. The disciples have been hearing this. They've been seeing this for probably a couple of years now. But they have a hard time understanding it. They have a hard time processing it. They have a hard time reconciling their understanding of how the world works with this new information that they are getting about Jesus. Back when I was, back when I was in the IT world, I was helping somebody with a computer program that started up some diesel generators, big ones, like the size of a school bus. And I had helped from a distance with the, with the control program, but one day I was there with them in the room with these diesel generators. And it, 
when you're 15 miles away and you click the start button, you can kind of watch all of the indicators and all of the gauges and you can watch the engine start up. That's pretty neat, right? But you don't quite get the same visceral understanding of it. When you're in that room and you push that button and you hear a thump that just punches you in the chest as these cylinders this big around go up and down and the deafening noise. Because it feels like a video game before, but now you're feeling it, you're seeing it, you're tasting it, you're hearing it. This is real life. See, I knew before in a theoretical sort of way what that experience was like, but now... But now it's actually happening. And it's, it's a little disconcerting sometimes. It's a little confusing. You, you don't really know what you're seeing, what's happening. And so the disciples, just having had their minds blown, are asked a question by Jesus. And it is the most important question that we can consider today. Where is your faith? See, this group of people, the teacher and his disciples, set out in presumably a sturdy boat. These were fishermen. They knew what a good boat was. They knew what a bad boat was. They knew enough to choose a good boat and to be able to fix it and repair it and, and make it into something that was worth taking out on the lake. They went out in their sturdy boat. And they had all of their experience and all of their skill. In human terms, they had everything that they needed. And there was a reasonable expectation here that things would go smoothly. But what they found out on the lake is that the things that they thought that they could depend on, their boat, their skills, their experience, those things that they thought that they could depend on weren't enough. They were depending on what they brought to the table to get them through. But they, like every other person who had ever lived, thought that they had enough, that they were enough, but they, like every other person before them, was wrong. They thought that they could depend on their skill and the strength of their boat to get them through, but here, at the most critical, desperate time in their lives, it could not. They had placed their faith in their skill and in their boat, and those things had failed them. Have you ever had a moment like that? When time stands still, and you see a thousand different paths laid out before you, and not a one of them has a different result. There's nothing you can do, there's no options, there's no choices, just the falling apart of everything. And in a moment, this world that you have known and that you have built, it all appears to be burning down around you, and there is nothing you can do about it. All the things that you depended on are failing, and all the things that you trusted in are worthless. Have you ever had one of those experiences? The most visceral for me, I've told this story before, was when Rachel was in the hospital. And, and they took her off the vent and they extubated her. And she didn't start breathing. 
So the machine isn't breathing for her, but she's not breathing for her. And so my little girl, 48 hours old, is laying on this table, not breathing. And I'm sure, I'm sure that it was a matter of four or five seconds. But every single second that went by, every single time that that clock ticked, it was like my whole life was beginning and ending all at once. Why isn't she breathing? And I could have written millions of dollars in checks. I could have showered people with cash. I could have given up everything that I owned, everything that I hoped for. And it wouldn't have made a bit of difference. It wouldn't have made that little girl breathe. But there was one person in that boat who was unperturbed by the whole situation. In fact, he was asleep. Jesus, in the back of the boat, trusting in the will of the Father, sleeping through this storm that had completely driven his disciples to despair. And he wasn't sleeping because the storm wasn't bad. But he was sleeping because he knew that the might and the wrath of the storm was nothing compared to the steadfast love and unmatched power of his heavenly father. This is what Jeremiah wrote about in Jeremiah 17. He was pronouncing judgment on Judah. Um, and he wrote, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places in the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. And he continues, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So there's two things, Jeremiah says, that you can trust in. You can trust in man, you can trust in the flesh, you can trust in your strength. This is what the disciples were doing at this point, right? They were trusting in their own strength. They were trusting in their possessions, in this boat. And Jeremiah says people who do that are like a shrub in the desert. They may grow for a time, but it's going to be a hard existence until it shrivels up and dies. Or, he says, you can trust in the Lord. You can be a tree that is planted by the water where the heat and the drought don't really bother it. Even in the distress that was going to kill the shrub in the desert, that tree continues to flourish and to prosper because it is watered by that stream. The disciples here, they were like that shrub in the desert. And when the thing that they were trusting in failed, they were lost. They were done. The careful balance that had sustained them up to that point was disrupted, and they knew it. They said, we're going to die. We're being destroyed. But Jesus, in contrast, was not worried. Because his hope was not in the boat. His hope was not in their ability as sailors, but his hope was in his heavenly Father. 
So where is your faith? There have been some spectacular failures to answer that question well recorded in the Bible. Times and circumstances where people place their faith in something other than God. We see the very first one in Genesis 3, right? Where Adam and Eve placed their faith in their ability to make good choices for themselves over what God had told them to do. We see that in Saul, right? Where he had the kingdom taken away from him because he trusted in, he had faith in the might of his military and his timing and his plans rather than God's timing and what he was doing. And he offered those unauthorized sacrifices. We see that same failure in Solomon where he placed his hope and his faith in the pleasures of this world rather than in obedience to God. And both of the kingdoms that came out of Israel in that time fell because they trusted false gods and they trusted military might for their salvation rather than trusting in the Lord. But as many stories of abject failure as we see, we see tremendous successes as well. We see Abraham, who had a good thing going for him in the land of Ur, but God told him to get up and go. And he got up and went, not knowing where he was going, and is remembered today for his faithfulness. And he suffered disappointment. He suffered loss. He suffered from the consequences of his own sin. But God was not just saving him from those things, but he was saving him through those things. We read about Samuel uh, in the Battle of Mizpah in, in 1 Samuel 7, where Israel faced the whole of the Philistine army with their armor and their chariots and their spears and their swords, and Israel had nothing. Sticks and stones. And what does Samuel do? He doesn't spend a bunch of time devising a strategy or, or talking tactics, right? He turns to the Lord in prayer, offering sacrifices. He cries out to God, placing all of his hope and all of his faith in the Lord. And how does the Lord respond? The Lord thunders. And the Philistines are defeated by the thundering voice of God. And so God saved them. Not saving them from their weakness, but saving them through their weakness. We see the same thing with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3. Right? They rejected the safe option. They could have just bowed down to the golden statue and it would have been, they would have been perfectly safe from there on out. But they rejected that. They rejected the option that preserved their lives and opted instead not to trust in the length of their life, but to trust in the Lord. Now, God didn't send them some sort of special sign or speak to them guaranteeing their safety, but they committed in faith to him and entrusted themselves to him, not knowing what the outcome would be. What did he do? He saved them. He saved them. In all of these cases, we can see that God isn't just saving people from their struggles, from their weakness, or from their suffering, but he is at work through all of those things to demonstrate his great power and his love to save. And all of these examples that we see written through the Old Testament, they reach their zenith, their pinnacle, their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who did not despise the cross he did not trust in the earthly or heavenly power that was his to command. He did not fear torture. He did not fear punishment. He did not fear death itself, but trusted in his heavenly father in the midst of all of those things. 
But his heavenly father did not deliver him from those things, but subjected him to those things. This was the great love of God for us, friends. That the father subjected the son to these things, not for his sake, but for ours. And having subjected him to these things, Christ was victorious over them on our behalf. For those who have loved him and trusted and followed after him. And his victory will one day, will one day be fully applied, be fully realized. That check has been deposited, but it just hasn't cleared yet. And when he returns and judges all mankind, rendering the just verdict of an everlasting death to to those who remain trusting in their sins, and announcing the forgiveness of those who have loved and embraced the salvation that he accomplished on the cross. When that happens, we will know and experience life. Eternal life. Unending life. Life without the consequences of sin. No pain. No suffering. No death. Not only will those things not exist, but all of their effects will be undone and healed. And every tear dried to the glory of God the Father. And friends, if this is true, if this is true, if God is for us, then who can be against us? If God the Father, the creator of the universe, sent his only begotten and dearly loved son to pay the ransom demanded by our sins and promises to be working in us through the Holy Spirit, to be preparing us for the eternal weight of glory, then who can be against us? That's what that beautiful passage in Romans 8 is teaching us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So even if we endure tribulation or distress or persecution, even if it says we are slaughtered like sheep all day long, there is nothing that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if we suffer, does that mean that we have been removed from the love of God? Absolutely not, Paul says. If we hunger, does that mean that we have been removed from the love of God? Never. If we die, does that mean that we have been removed from the love of God? No. No. Because if our faith is in him and his steadfast love for us, then nothing, there is nothing that will be able to separate us from that love. So if we are in a boat on the Lake of Galilee that is being sunk in a storm, does that change or reduce or nullify the promises of God? Not one bit. You want to know why? Jesus said in verse 22, let us go across to the other side of the lake. Jesus said, we're going to the other side of the lake. 
Jesus said, we are going to the other side of the lake. So the storm comes up and it's raging around you. Where are you going? We're going to the other side of the lake. If your boat sinks, where is Jesus going? Well, Jesus is going to the other side of the lake. The man can walk on water. The man commands creation. He's going to the other side of the lake. And he said, you're going with him. And so your boat sinks. Where are you going? You're going to the other side of the lake. If you die in that lake, where did Jesus say you were going? He said, we're going to the other side of the lake. And do you think that your death is going to nullify that? That he's going to say, oh, well, I was going to take him to the other side of the lake, but he's dead and I can't do anything. No, he stands in power over death itself. And not even that will be able to separate us from his love. He said, you're going. So you're going. You believe him. Do you have faith in his promises? Where is your faith? Because it's easy for us today to trust our boats. Because comparatively speaking, we build really good boats today. We can trust in the boat of our country, right? For 250 years, the boat of our country has sustained us through some pretty tough storms. But there is coming a day when the storm will come that will claim the boat of the United States of America, and that boat will sink. Where is your faith? We can build solid careers, investing thousands of hours in building them up, advancing in title, advancing in skill, maybe not even in one job, but certainly getting yourself to the point where you wouldn't be unemployed for 10 minutes if you wanted a job. That is a good, solid, sturdy boat that will bear you through some tremendous storms. But there will come a day, there will come a storm that will sink your career out from underneath you. Where is your faith? Is your faith in your self-sufficiency? Right? I, don't, I don't need to depend on anyone. I got things under control. I'm grow my own food, fix my own things, save up money, live frugally. Not, I don't need to depend on the world because the world's falling apart and it's not dependable. If you take that attitude, you can build a pretty solid boat that will carry you through a lot, but it will sink in an instant when the right storm hits. You can build the boat of your family. You can depend upon that boat, right? We stick together. We help each other. We're all in this together, and we can get through anything. But the storms of this life have a way of pulling families apart. You can depend on the boat of your life itself. But if our hope and our trust is wrapped up in our hearts continuing to beat and in our lungs continuing to breathe, then we will be disappointed. That boat will sink. Because if Jesus doesn't come back first, then every single one of us will die. We don't know where, or how, or when, but the boat of your life will one day sink. 
If your faith is in any of these things, if your faith is in your country, if your faith is in your career, in your self-sufficiency, in your ability to maintain life itself, if you are trusting these things for your safety and security and provision, then one day you will discover that that boat is sinking underneath your feet. Where is your faith? The world around us calls us to depend on these things, to build stronger boats. But when these things, but these things, when we face tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, when we face those things, those boats cannot sustain us. They sink. When these boats face the storm of death, they sink. So where is your faith? What Jesus calls us to is to place our faith in him and in his promises towards us. To trust him and his promises. To trust in his plan and his purpose rather than our own. To trust in his power rather than ours. To trust that no matter the storm, no matter the flood, that he is the ark that endures to the end. And so if we want to live if we want to reach the other side of that lake, we must admit that we have been trusting in the wrong things. That's repentance. And trust instead in the steadfast love of God that has been shown to us in the life, death, resurrection, and soon return of Jesus Christ. That, that is the only faith that will never and can never disappoint. Let's pray together. Father, we are so very guilty of placing our trust in in the things of this world, in our own strength, placing our faith in anything other than you. But Father, we, we know, we know that it is only in Christ that we can find deliverance from the storms of this world. It is only in Christ that we can have a hope that sees us through safely to the other side. It is only in Christ that we can be rescued from the storm that is our sin, the storm of our own making, the storm where we deserve to die. But Father, you have given us deliverance. You have given us salvation. You have given us Christ. So we pray that our faith would ever only be found in him. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen that faith, be growing that faith. And that, Father, that faith, we pray that that faith would be spread through us, through our witness into the world. So that those around us, those we love, Family, co-workers, strangers on the street, God. We pray that through us, that through our example of faith, that many would come to know, many would come to believe, and that the harvest from the fruit of our lives would be great. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.